It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more. The fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18 plus, begambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. After the lights go out with Steve Harmison and Leon McKenzie on Talk Sport. I'm Steve Harmison, former England fast bowler, 2005 Ashes winner. And I'm Leon McKenzie, former Premier League footballer and professional boxer. In this series, we're focusing on elite athletes and their transition from professional sport to civilian life. We both enjoy the highs and lows unique to professional sport, a vocation which can lead to adulation and riches beyond the means of the vast majority of people. However, we also struggled with what followed when our respective careers came to an end, with the roar of the crowd becoming a fading memory and the adrenaline-fueled lifestyle was no more. Tonight on TalkSport, we speak with one of the great talents from football's Premier League era, the former England, Newcastle and Ipswich star, Kieran Dyer in After the Lights Go Out. Kieran Dyer, chance for Newcastle. Go! And there's a real chance here for Kieran Dyer. Kieran sends it in. Dyer's looping header. Oh, yes! Oh, yes, oh, yes! Kieran Dyer! We'll be joined by Kieran in a moment, but can I first say it's fantastic to be doing this series with you, Leon. What have been the main issues you found the hardest to come to terms with since retiring from professional sport? Yeah, I'd, I'd say for me, I was never ready to retire. So I found that really hard and I didn't cope with knowing that the retirement was coming before my time, if that makes sense. So along with retiring from a, an elite career and having so many years, you know, with playing football, and, you know, like as we go on to to maybe explain about routine and structure and everything done for us and everything laid out and you know what time to be in each day and, you know, you just got a certain routine. And when that stops, if you're not prepared to retire, that's where I found the most hardest. And also I loved scoring goals. So I loved that adrenaline fueled sort of lifestyle where I felt the need to be important. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. I feel. I feel when at the back end of of my career, when I when I finished playing cricket for England, probably should have retired then. I realised playing on for Durham, I was playing for the wrong reasons. I was playing for financial reasons. Probably the first time I felt as I had played for financial reasons, and that didn't go well. It petered out. My career petered out in such a way, and it, I struggled with a a lot of issues, especially around touring. My first thing was I went on a tour in 96 to Pakistan barely wet behind the ears 16 17 year old never been out of the country before and then all of a sudden I was thrust into this this new environment and I think that scarred me for tour and life after that and then when I got into the international stage there's a lot of people I found it great talking about this this subject because there's a lot of people feel as though they struggled when they went on the field 
I was the other way. I needed to be on the field because I felt that I was, I was safe when I was on the field. It was when I was off the field in my own mind was where I really had a struggle and being away from home and being on tour. And one prime example was in 2004, you know, leading into Christmas 2004, I was ranked number one bowler in the world, best, better than anybody else. And I remember before the first test match in Port Elizabeth, crying my eyes out not knowing what was wrong with me because the word depression hadn't come into it or the mental health issue hadn't come into it. And I'm crying my eyes out, not knowing what's wrong with me. And I'm looking and thinking, I'm ranked one of the best cricketers in the world here. And I want to go home. I'm in Johannesburg. I want to go home. And I don't know what to do. That was the first instance when I really felt there was something there. And then at the end of your career, when you talk about it, I always try to describe it as though it was, it was like coming out of the supermarket with heavy bags of shopping hmm. and not knowing where your car was. And then looking around and thinking, well, the bags are getting heavier. Don't know where the car is. I don't know what to do because for 16, 17 years, I've been told what to do, what to wear, what to eat, where to go, where to be. And I didn't know what to do. And it probably took me four or five years to get to a position where I had an idea where my life's going. So I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts going forward and the guests going forward. And I'm really looking forward to hearing of of Kieran because he's somebody who I got to know at Newcastle you know, reasonably, reasonably well. I've seen him in golf trips after that. The title of his book is fantastic. It says everything because, you know, I think a lot of people are a lot smarter when they come to the end of their career than what they were when they started. No, great. Listen, you said it. You said it all. But let's introduce today's guest. And it is my pleasure to give a big welcome to Kieran Dyer. Hi, guys. How, How are you, doing? Kieran? How are you doing, Kieran? I'm very good. I must say that intro for Leon when it said ex-premiership footballer turned to uh, basically a British champion boxer. It's fantastic, by the way. Not many people could quit one sport and go and do the other. The only person I know was Michael Jordan. So you're in good company. Yeah, well, I had a go. I wouldn't say I won the British title, but I definitely got to elite levels in, in a different sport. And you know, with being on the pads yourself with me, um, which I need to get you back on, by the way. Um, and and you know how, how hard it is, but you know I was thirty five years old when I went in, so thank you, mate. Kieran, how you found no how you found retirement? The show's about the transition. How have you found retirement, and you know what does retirement look like for you now? Uh, so two years after I retired, I basically did nothing. I was quite fortunate that financially I was in a very stable position, so I think that helped quite a bit, but. One of my big regrets was not having an exit plan. So obviously I took my coaching badges late, two years after retiring. I wish I did all this when I was still playing football. It's like I'm playing catch up. I want to be a manager. I want to be a coach. But because, like I said, maybe because it was, I was financially stable. I just thought, oh, I can do what I want. I can travel the world. I can go and watch the super fights in Vegas. I can play a lot of golf and try and bring my handicap down. Well, like you said, probably after about 18 months, I was in a limbo and I needed more. I needed to get the juices flowing. I even had the stint of trying. I'm a celebrity. Um, <laughs> you obviously, enjoy that? I, I did um, because on the later stages of my career, I had a lot of injuries. So my kids never really see the peak gear on. They never see me on TV. I was basically like a YouTube footballer to them. <laughs> and it was a family show that we all watched and we all loved. And... Um, I just thought it would be great to my kids to finally see me doing something that they could relate to and be proud of. So in that aspect, it was fantastic. And also, I think I, I changed a lot of people's opinions of me 
I was tarnished by the media as um, one of the brats, one of the, the bad boys of football. And um, a lot of people had this impression of me and I think I proved a lot of people wrong. So um, it was nice to um, show the real me too as well. You know, you came fourth, right? Yeah, I did, I yeah. I think until Harry Redknapp won it, I think I was the highest placed footballer. So yeah. uh, that was my claim to fame. <laughs> yeah, no. The highest placed footballer. I beat, uh, obviously, Dennis Wise, Jimmy Bullard, Bridgie, John Fashnew. There's a lot of footballers who, uh, who have been on the show. So, yeah, uh, that's my claim to fame. You, you mentioned there, Kieran, just to pick you up on, you mentioned there, part of the brats and the, 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 what you were perceived to be. Did you feel as though you were an easy target for the media? I was. Raheem Sterling, I remember that article when Raheem Sterling came out. I remember when he bought his mum a house and yeah. they, they did a story where he was flashed for buying his mum a house and then another player bought a house and the media portrayed this person as being so kind and what a great fella. And I can remember one of the, the nicknames the press label made was the King of Blit. And at the time I was young and yes, I had a diamond earring, I had some cool fancy watches, but for them to label me King of Bling, there was a racial kind of tone to it because you look at David Beckham, he had more diamonds than me. He had more expensive watches than me with more diamonds in. Many players did. But because it's me and I'm an easy target and maybe because I'm black as well, and yes, I didn't help myself with the way I acted off the pitch at times, but for them to call me the king of bling, at a time I didn't kind of, ah, that's just them picking on me. But after Raheem Sterling started bringing this all to light, I definitely could see that there was definitely a racist kind of element to it, 100%. So you definitely felt it was probably against you going in then. You, know, you felt like you're going in to prove yourself, but just to be yourself, but to show everyone that actually you've got it wrong. Obviously, you, you, you lot of reading my book. So yeah. with the sexual abuse I suffered as a kid and I never had any help until I was into my 30s. So I was dealing with the abuse on my own and I formed certain traits and I formed a certain personality what kind of protected me and one of the the, the traits that I formed was that I was never going to show vulnerability again mm. if someone was going to come at me I was going to lash out so when the press and everyone's coming at me I just had this attitude is like f you to all of you lot I ain't putting up with your crap you think mm. I care what you say that was the kind of the young naive someone who was dealing, dealing with sexual abuse all only so I formed this stubborn personality and what is so hard when I talk about stuff like that is now is that people judge me in my younger days. And listen, I did some monumental wrongs and wh whatever, but I'm a decent person. I'm a kind-hearted person. It was just that the abuse and the way I dealt with the abuse formed these personalities, what wasn't really true to my character, but I just couldn't ever be in a vulnerable state again. Mm -hmm. And that was very hard when I got the help and... Um, I started seeing why my personality like was this. It was just unbelievable that 20 years of my life up to that point had been marred so bad and it's something I could never get back. And I always think back, well, what if I would have spoke out about the, the abuse? I would have got the help. And I think that I would have been a completely different person with my personality and my traits. But Listen. as I put in my book, my dad would have killed the guy who abused me. So... <laughs> I yeah. wouldn't want my dad to kill someone and go in prison. Yeah. So You know what, Frank, Kieran, honestly, you know, everything you've said there, I mean, I, I can relate to because I went through it very, at similar ages, probably a little bit younger than you, with a woman and obviously, you know, that whole sexually abused situation. I totally understand. Mm -hmm. And I think, for me, I bottled it up 
for so many years. It was only until I wrote my own book that I managed to say, well, actually, the reasons behind my trauma, the reasons behind maybe my, my womanizing ways or behavior patterns are because of a, a psychological breakdown and sexual abuse and things that I've seen when I was like eight, nine years old. So I totally understand everything you're saying and I think it's commendable for you to have the courage and to be able to be brave enough to say, do you know what, well, this is the foundation of what I've come from, but this is what I'm doing today to heal and to basically give back. So thank you. Kieran, we were talking before about suffering sexual abuse during your childhood. Talk about that and then the subject and having to deal with all that as a as a young man, young person going through your career. Do you feel as though them emotions, not the sort of the emotions of, of, of what happened, but that the strength of character that you had to go through that helped you, you know, overcome what was probably the hardest part of your career? Negative part of your career was injuries. You know, what was the most difficult? Was it the physical side or the mental side of coming back from it? And did the mental side, was it helped by, you know, having been such a strong person at a, at a in an early age? The mental side, definitely with the injuries and where you could say I was mentally strong because how I dealt with the abuse on my own and went on to have the career that I had, that didn't help me one bit with the mental side of the injuries because they were different kind of emotions I was going through. I was obviously labelled as sick note. A lot of my injuries were misdiagnosed, Mm. um, which a lot of people didn't know at the time. I was with you in Newcastle quite a bit at the training ground and there was a time where I missed a whole season with hamstring injuries. And I'm talking about a whole season. In that time, uh, Graham Soonis was the manager and he wanted to build the whole team around me. They gave me a bumper new contract. I didn't stay fit for that season. Graham Soonis lost his job and Glenn Roder came in as caretaker manager and said to me, I just want you to go and see this physio I used to use in West Ham. So I said, Glenn, seriously, I am done. I've been to Germany. I've been to America. I've been to Holland. I've had every injection in my body going, bloody, bloody, blah. He said, please, just try. I went down to John Green. He tells me to strip off down to my slips. He's examining me. He says straight away, oh, is it your left hamstring that is always going? Yeah, yeah. He says, your left glute is not firing. So I said, okay. So he said, so every time you're running or sprinting, your left glute is such a strong muscle that helps your hamstring. So if your glute's not working, all the pressure is going on to your hamstring. So he said, oh, so that's a good start sign. That's a good start. So he said, get changed. He said, we're now going to uh, see these radiographers in um, London. Uh, his name was Jerry Healy. So he said, I'm going to take all your scans. They took all my scans. So it's a year of hamstring tails or whatever. They put the scans up. Jerry Healy looks at the scans and goes, oh, you've got paratendinitis. I said, what's paratendinitis? He said, the tendon in your hamstring is having so much strain, it just becomes inflamed. So I said, okay. He said, I said, so what happens? He says, oh, I've just got to put a steroid injection in it. You rest a week and then it's healed. So I've just wasted a year of my career. I've been absolutely hammered by the fans in Newcastle who obviously label me as a sick no, never fit. All the press, all the fans, I'm going through this. I'm dealing with retirement in my head. And if I'd have gone to see John Green and Jerry Healy when it first happened, I'd have been fit for that whole year. And just little things like that. And it went on. I broke my leg at West Ham. It's meant to be a straightforward operation. Ramsey's had the same injury and he came back within nine months. I have the same injury as him. 
I have to have four operations because the operation wasn't done right. Four operations and, that, and I come back within two years. So as a player, we trust the advice that yeah. we're giving. We trust the physios. We trust the people who are reading the scans. We trust the people who are operating on us. Our livelihood is in their hands. And listen, they're only human. But when you're the one who takes all the stick, it grinds you down. And that was so hard for me to deal because in my younger days where when we were allowed out, I'm out every night <laughs> when we're allowed out. So if we've got a game Saturday and then with the game following Saturday, we'd play Saturday, I'd be out Saturday night, <laughs> Sunday, <laughs> Monday, Tuesday, then we shut it down. I'm living my low throng and I'm playing hundreds and hundreds of games. And it just seemed that when I, like you said, you get mature and you realise you've got to eat right, got to do the right things. I was the first in the training ground, last to leave the training ground, always in the gym. I could never stay fit. And it was just a hard, hard, tough place. I would take it home with me. It affected my partner at the time, who was obviously my ex. It affected my children because I was just so grumpy. And that's another thing people do not see. Listen, everybody has problems in any walk of life. But as footballers or as sports stars, you're seen as superheroes. It's yeah. like we can't show that we're mentally struggling because it will be frowned upon. But we are just humans and you've all probably been seeing the Michael Jordan documentary. Yeah, great series. And Michael Jordan was a, the highest, the highest icons. He's up there with Muhammad Ali. And he put, he said a great thing. And he said that they were talking about him being a role model. And he said, I am no role model. I don't want to be a role model. I never act trying to be a role model because to be a role model, you have to be perfect and nobody's perfect. And I thought, you know what? Mm. Everybody says about sports stars, we have to be role models. But how can we do that when it's an impossible job? Because we're all going to make mistakes and we're all going to, you know what I mean? So they say, our oh, kids look up to you, but we're human. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to do wrong. And I just thought, that's another thing that puts a lot of sportsmen under pressures, that we're looked at as invincible superheroes who can do no wrong. Where I find that, yeah, Kieran, is the human element of, of anything in life is what I would always encourage young players to come into the game of, of cricket, of any sport, is make a mistake, but learn from it. Yep. You, know, you, you make it a second time, I might kick your backside. You make a third time, then I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, well, I think I might be pushing you to one side here. And I think that is something that comes with growing up and coming in into sport. I was fascinated by that Last Dance documentary on Michael Jordan mm. for the simple fact is, in my sport, in cricket, we had a guy playing who was the best player in... Yeah, that I ever played with, a guy called Kevin Peterson. And we play an 11-man team, 16-man squad all around, 20-odd people in a dressing room. And by the end of his career, Kevin Peterson was ridiculed uh, and he was laughed out of the England dressing room. He was sacked by the ECB. And when I look at the way Kevin Peterson went on in a dressing room, it was exactly like Michael Jordan. If he didn't like what was happening, he told people. If people weren't doing their jobs properly, Kevin told them. He was the best trainer. He was the biggest superstar. That he got all the endorsements, fair enough. But at the end of the day, he was a winner and he wanted to win. And you've got this Michael Jordan, yes, great, put on a pedestal and he, he had a fantastic career. But then I've seen someone like Kevin Peterson. So it, it comes down to managing and you spoke there about your injuries. If you've got the right people who are in charge and managing and easing, because I'm sure Leon Euler had exactly the same when you played football as what Kieran had when he played football. There were certain managers you work with where you think, he understands me. And there's certain managers you think... 
he hasn't got a clue about me. Well, that's an in- that's an interesting point, Steve, because you know when I'm listening to Kieran there, I'm listening to myself because I understand the thoughts, feelings, and emotions. I understand everything that he's saying to the point of from an injury point of view, because injuries from my career totally, totally ruined me psychologically, physically. I shut off from everything, and. When I hear Kieran talking about, you know, oh, being called sick note, and, you know, I think I, I read something about where Kieran, you know, because he was away for such a long period of time from, from the team, there's like rumours of, of, of cancer things and all these, you know, disgusting things that people like, like to make up. I had the same you thing. When I was out, out of it, I had the same thing where, you know, oh, what, Leon's in, he's, he's gone into like a mental home and, you know, just people making up things like, like and it was really affecting me. I don't know how you feel about that, Kieran, but it was affecting me. Yeah, again, that was Newcastle with the statement. So obviously at the time when they were trying to come up with reasons why I was getting injured, um, I was taking med- medication for a liver problem I had and the medication apparently slows down your healing process so obviously physios (laughs) that's a great excuse to why i'm not going to be fit it's an easy way out in it it must be his medication so instead in coming out to say uh kieran's going to take a extended period out because of his liver a liver problem and be honest they just said because of a medical condition that is the worst thing (laughs) a football (laughs) club can say is Kieran Dyer is going to be out for an extended period of time because of a medical condition. So that's obviously when I had people ring me up, I've got leukemia, I've got AIDS, I've got this, and you're just like, wow. Yeah. But when I knew injuries were affecting me was when I was trying to come back from my broken leg because, again, we touched on my sexual abuse, and one of the things that I brought up in my personality is I never showed vulnerability. I never, ever cried in front of people. So... There was one time I cried at Newcastle when Mick Wadsworth was having a go. Mick Wadsworth was Bobby Robson's assistant yeah. and he was having a go at Lua Lua and he was just picking on the young kid. Gary Speed was playing awful. Alan Shearer was playing awful. Warren Barton was playing awful. Nobby was playing awful and he picked on Lua Lua and I lost my, like I said, it brought back memories again of an older person when I was young, vulnerable, and I went mad at Mick Wadsworth. I went absolutely ballistic. Bobby Robson then goes ballistic at me. I take off my top, start crying, saying I'm not playing, and blah de blah. And obviously, Bobby's great man management. He comes into the sh- mm. comes into the shower afterwards and says, "Well done. I loved how you stuck up for Lua Lua, but I can't show to my my staff that um, I can't have a player." having a go at my staff, but brilliant. And so I, that was the only time I can remember ever crying in football. And then after I broke my leg at West Ham, there was times where I kept coming back onto the training pitch. I'd done all my rehab right in front of the lads. And then after five minutes, my hamstring will go or I'll do that. And I would just break down crying. And I thought, for me to be crying, this is seriously, seriously affecting you. So that was a bit of a breakthrough for you because when I look back as well, when I saw you in the jungle, I think you had a moment in the jungle mm. where you, you sort of broke down. What was going through your mind? Because now you're now you're in a place where you are showing your vulnerability, and it was it, it was it's great to see. I don't care what people think is weak or whatever it is. Like I cry a lot, so yeah. when I saw you cry as my friend, not only like you know I was like okay, champ, like you know I get it. Yeah. But what was going through your mind at that particular time? 
how many times have you been around someone who's cried? It could be a death of someone or... And when they're crying and you're going, let it all out, let it out. Mm. Come on, that's okay. Mm. Let it all out, let it all out. So just think for all them years, all these emotions and everything I've just bottled up, bottled up. Eventually it comes to a head where I just lose it or snap and say things I didn't really want to say to people, you, you know? Mm. So it's like therapeutic, I think, to let things out and to show show vulnerability and a show emotion rather than putting on this bravado and this act that you're something that you're not. I'm an emotional guy. Like I said, I was frustrated in the jungle. I can remember the time it was with the crazy Lady C and Duncan Bannantyne and they kept arguing I was trying to be the peacemaker and it, it didn't become fun no more and I just got frustrated and I had a good old cry and I felt a lot better for it. But without me meeting Peter Kay at the time who made me get the help that I need to think, I would have never have cried in the jungle and I would have attacked Duncan Ballantyne. So when Duncan was coming at me, I would have come back at Duncan twice as hard and it wouldn't have been good viewing because I would have made sure I won the argument. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Ladbrokes. Odds update on Talk Sport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. After the lights go out with Kieran Dyer on Talk Sport. Kieran, in the last section, you briefly mentioned the name of Peter Kay, one of the founders of the Sporting Chance Clinic, who sadly passed away in 2013. Tell us a bit more about Peter and how he changed your life. Yeah, it was all down to Joey Barton, really. We were all at QPR at the time, and um, Joey suggested to the manager, Neil Warnock, that he would like to bring Peter Kay in. And it was more, not just more for people to see individually at the time the players had their issues with what was going wrong uh, with the training side of stuff and how the club was run I thought it was quite productive and I just loved the way Peter Kay his demeanour he was a special kind of guy and um, after we finished the group discussions he'd say listen I'm going to be around for a couple of weeks if anyone wants to come and see me as individuals you're more than welcome at the time Obviously, in my first game on my debut in 10 minutes, I break my foot at um, QPR. So it was another injury and another embarrassment I had to deal with because 10 minutes into your debut, 
at that time, my missus at the time, who was who's now my ex, she thought I was depressed um, because of my injuries, and my mum thought I was suffering from kind of some kind of depression. So I just see him one afternoon and said, "Can I have a chat?" And I, I explained that my missus thought I was depressed through my injuries, and so does my my mum. And we were just having a chat about my injuries, and he was like, "There's more to it. <laughs> it doesn't really sound like you're depressed from just injuries and." And then all of a sudden, I'm just sitting there and was like, there's no way I'm telling this old geezer <laughs> about my sexual abuse. No way. I'm not talking about it. And they're just so clever at pushing the buttons. And he just kept saying little things. And then I just let it out. and just cried my eyes out for about 45 minutes, talking the story to him. And within 45 minutes of hearing my story, he just started giving me answers to everything. And I was just like blown away by it so yeah it became a twice a week kind of a therapy session where I'd explain to him and he'd give him methods to help and um, I wouldn't say he saved my life because I was never in danger of committing suicide or anything but he made me be the real me and mm. he got back the real Kieran which Kieran. are Sorry, ever be grateful for. Had you had any sort of counselling before that, or was this the first time you really felt as though I'm talking to a stranger here, but I feel so comfortable doing it? It was the first time, and I didn't think I had a problem. So mm. obviously, I've been sexually abused, and I, like I said, I dealt with that on my own, and then I've become a professional footballer. I've had success, so it's like I've overcome that, and I didn't realise that. The personality traits that it formed, I just thought, oh, that just must be be me. Mm. This is how I was born. I'm stubborn and all stuff like that. Mm. So because I didn't think I had a problem, I was never going to go to see anyone for a problem, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So it was only after speaking to him and then realizing that what ha happened to me, the trauma that what happened to me formed this person of me that wasn't really me. So it's Java now to break down all the stuff that I've used as a defense mechanism. And then you would get the real me. Listen, a lot's been said about Joey Barton, but I've always got nice things to say about Joey Barton. <laughs> Listen, some people don't like to hear the truth and he'll tell you the truth, all right? And he's had his problems and he swore by Peter Kay and Peter Kay's helped his life dramatically. And he made me understand so, so much. And like I said, when you're getting answers within half an hour, breaking down and telling you it changes your you life just think why couldn't i have done this when i was <laughs> 17 18 yeah but, but when you go back it you know things were a lot different like especially when we was playing there wasn't that to go to unless you, you're getting sort of recommended like joey did for you i mean how long did you go in your career without actually saying nothing and also you know i mean obviously most people know with my suicide attempt that that attempt was literally because of me not being able to speak. Like mm. I bottled so much up inside and I just lost lost the plot. I lost everything. And obviously when you go through personal things as well, this is what everyone forgets. Not only we're dealing with things on the field, but the outside world and, you know, breaking down and went through divorce and missing my children, all the things that come with, with life that I'm not coping with as well. Did you ever have a place where you're going through your injuries and it's constant injuries after injuries and you know we, we I used to hate going into the treatment room every day hate it 
you know, nothing worse for me looking outside and seeing all the boys, like, you know, having a banter and, having, you know, training and playing. And I'm on the treatment bed just trying to get fit. But when I was on the bed, I was, like, planning when to sort of check out of life. I had enough. Like, I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's where my mind was at. For you, did you ever have any suicidal thoughts? Because I know I did, because I couldn't cope. No, never. I just think... And I can only speak on my behalf of that because I've got children. Mm. Yeah. Listen, this people have serious mental problems, and listen, that is an illness why people commit suicide. So, for me personally, because I've got children, I think that for me to to leave them, no problem is big enough for me to leave them and let them have to deal with that. That's the right. If answer. I didn't have children, maybe if I didn't have children, who knows? I've always had my problems when I've had children in my life, and mm. I could never take my life away and let them go through something like that so i i understand everything you're saying and i think where i come mm. from listen my children are my world they are my everything mm. but i think i know where, i see your snapchat yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so where, where i was at nothing could really sort of save my, where i was at I, I, I gave up you know what i mean and 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 my heart just i didn't want to exist i honestly believe that my children would be better off without me because i was so unhappy mm. Do you know what I mean? And I, and when I hear you say that, I mean, there's a part of me that's like, like I, I, I understand because now the little Mackenzie that speaks now and stands in front of my kids now, it, I fight for everything. I'll tell you a, quite a powerful story. So uh, obviously Gary Speed, yeah. um, yeah. ex-teammate of mine, was really, really close to Craig Bellamy. So um, obviously when Gary Speed committed suicide, my agent at the time, David Manassi, uh, he got the heads up from Shay Given. There's a rumour that Gary Speed has um, committed suicide. So I rung Craig and I was the one who broke the news to Craig. And obviously Craig was in denial, didn't believe it, had to ring up him and him and uh, Gary Speed shared the same kind of like PR woman. He was trying to contact her. She hadn't heard from Gary. She then made some calls, found out it was true, rung up Craig frantically. Obviously, so Craig was in a bad way. So it was probably about a couple of weeks afterwards Bellas was playing for Liverpool and they were playing Man City in the League Cup semi-final and Bellas got a box at Anfield and invited Gary Speed's two children to come to the box mm. and I was in the box and they were there with Gary Speed's dad and how brave and how strong and how resilient these kids were blew my mind away honestly I've never seen it was just so powerful and I was so angry with Gary Speed after that and listen, God rest his soul in that. But the way I see how, how them kids were dealing, I was, I was angry that Gary Speed took his own life. And it was only after then speaking to people, the professionals and that, and they were saying, listen, suicide, it's a proper illness. It's not a selfish act here on it. It's just like you said, like you said, sometimes people think them gone is going to be the better for everybody. Mm. But the way their kids acted after their dad had committed suicide was just like one of the most powerful things and most inspirational things I've seen from kids. Kieran, having retired from football um, and you said after two years, you, know, you did nothing, had the financial resources to look after. But what have you come to the conclusion now and where does Kieran Dyer move on to? And you know, where does he get joy out of the rest of his, of his life after his professional career? I've just got the bug for coaching now. I love yeah. being on the uh, training pitch. 
like I said, I'd like to be a, a first team coach or a first team manager one day. And it kind of brings me on to my, in a way, a, the next kind of frustrating kind of thing for me is that, because me and Titus, obviously, you know, Titus Brown yeah. from Newcastle days, we're Ipswich lads and we were at the football club and we were doing our coaching badges and that. And we did an article uh, with a, a journalist up in the northeast, um, Luke Edwards, and it was about the Rooney rule when it was Jason Roberts and everyone was trying to um, get the Rooney rule in place in this country. And we did an article and I was asked about the Rooney rule and I said, look, I don't want a job because of the colour of my skin. I don't want to be given a job because I'm a black man. I want to earn my role. I want to deserve the job. And I got quite a bit of backlash for that. I had a few black players at the time saying it's all right saying it now you don't know how hard and how we're being held back and we don't even get interviews and this is not to say you'll be given a job it's just to get given an interview and blah 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 and I was just thinking yeah yeah whatever but as I'm going on my journey now and and you're seeing it is very hard to to get interviews for uh coaching roles as, as a black man so you was in a, I, I, Ipswich under 18s last yeah, year, yeah, Ipswich year. under 18. Uh, so I, I, I left Ipswich because um, I wanted to start to do men's football. So I took time off. I went to different clubs to see how different managers worked. Uh, Blackburn let me go in. I know Tony Mowbray, see how he worked, picked his brains on certain things. Been to Anderlecht with Vincent Company. Just been all around learning my craft. But I just look at the football today and the amount of black players that are in most teams grace and most teams and then you look at the staff and there's hardly any black staff and mm. it is a problem in this country that need, needs to be addressed again i'm not saying i should have a job because i'm black you have to deserve the job but just to to speak to people to be considered for the job to to have the interview to to pitch your ideas that's all you ask and i was very naive when i did that article i just oh listen i stand by what i say i don't want a job because i'm black i want to earn my job but it would be nice to be given the opportunity or the interview to, to to present because it is a massive problem in this in this country. Football-wise, I hope to see yourself get that job. I hope to see more black former players get the jobs, that not because, yeah, they are black, but because they are good at coaching and, you know, want to be a manager and, you know, and just look after and... And do what that, that what everyone else can do. It doesn't really come down to, yeah, to anything okay. else. I don't want to really cause too much controversy, but you look at, and I love that my era of players are now getting managers' jobs. It's fantastic. So mm. you look at Scott Parker's first job. He was Fulham assistant. His first manager job, he's Fulham manager. Joey Parton gets the Fleetwood job. Frank gets Derby. Stephen Gerrard gets Rangers. Mm. Sol Campbell gets Macclesfield. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and he had to you know, beg, borrow and scream to get that. Another point you're making. You, Steve, it's frustrating, is it? Yeah. Is it frustrating? So, these I think these players are getting the jobs because of their playing career. They're brilliant as a player. They're the next breed coming through. But then, if you're putting Sol Campbell with them when you're talking about playing careers, there's something fundamentally wrong. Steven Gerrard and Frank Lampard are probably the only ones who probably could say they probably had a better career than Sol Campbell. But Sol Campbell's he's up there with that upper echelon. He had a better career than all these new era players. He's right up there and. He has to start at Macclesfield. You just take Paul Lintz when he was yeah. a manager. His first job, he was a massive success. Massive success. He gets the job at Blackburn. So he gets the chance to manage in the top flight. It doesn't go well. I know that Paul Lintz was trying to get other jobs. Yes, he got an, 
couple of other jobs afterwards. But then you look at a manager like Alan Pardew or uh, Steve McLaren. They get sacked, they get another top job. They get yeah. sacked, they get another top job. They get sacked, they get another top job. They get sacked, they get another top job. It's yeah. just like... I mean, I know Darren Moore mm. very well. and Yeah, yeah that, when he got sacked, people were outraged. He was still in the playoffs. There was still a quarter of the season to go. And Chris Hewton keeps Brighton up in the Premier League. He gets sacked. Where do you see yourself, Kieran, in the, the managerial world? Do you feel as though, right, I'm ready now to go in? Do you feel as though it's a Sol Campbell road you want to go down? Or do you feel as though, you've right, I can I can go in somewhere like a Scott Parker, as in a coach, and if, if, if it comes where I get a, a chance, a sniff, I'll go in at, at that higher level? Are you thinking big, Kieran? My ideal job would be to one day be Ipswich Town Manager, being a local boy at Ipswich. Mm. All my family, friends are in Ipswich, wouldn't have to to move that would be my my ideal job my my number one job I'm quite fortunate that I have very good contacts at, at Ipswich just before this um, coronavirus broke out we were talking about maybe me having another role in the football club actually dealing with the older players so um, Brilliant. Brilliant. I know obviously Craig Bellamy wants to be a manager and he's probably my best friend obviously everyone talks about how well he speaks on TV when he does his bits and pieces on in the media but He's a fantastic coach and um, I know he wants to be a manager one day and I could work with him in the future. I was just about to say, are we going to see a Bellamy-Dyer combination going into into an Ipswich town or a a club like that? Well, the thing is, he couldn't come to Ipswich because of the Norwich connection. And if he ever got the Norwich job, I certainly ain't going to Norwich. No way. I see you at Norwich. Norwich could offer me 10 million a year and I'm not going there. You way. No way. I've always said this, there was only two places we fell out in Newcastle between the fans when I left. That was one of the reasons it was like the fans had been sick of me. But I always said I would never work at Norwich and I would never work at Sunderland. Right, Kieran. Oh, I remember when Titus, Bra- Ty- Titus Bramble <laughs> rung yeah. me up to tell me that he was making the move to Sunderland. And I was like, are you crazy? Are you mad? Are you saying... I, w- I couldn't do that. Are you saying, Kieran, if you get a first-team yeah. managerial job at Norwich, you're turning it down? Yes. <laughs> Fair play. Yeah. Well, that's all right. Did you that know? sound convincing? Yeah, yeah it talked did. about a principal person. It was, it, was, it was a yes in capital letters. Yeah. <laughs> but listen... I, 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 do sound like a, I do sound like a hypocrite now because I said black people were not getting opportunities. <laughs> you're saying... Didn't want to pull you up on that. Didn't want to pull you up on that. But um, listen, as I mean, we're about to close... Boy, there's some, some yeah. things you can't do, yeah. I can see that. That was a big capital yes. But um, listen, mm. it's been... Fantastic to hear you speak properly, actually, in depth about so many personal things and, you know, um, getting a better understanding. If you didn't know Kieran Dyer properly, you just see him as a footballer. Um, There's so much more to him. And um, I really appreciate everything you've shared with me and Steve today. You know, it's it's quite heartwarming and I relate to you a lot. And, um, you know, I really appreciate you coming on. What I would say is, and I'm going to ask you this, do you wish you would have come to see me and do, done some pads when you had a situation with Lee Bowyer at that time because I weren't happy with the way you were throwing, <laughs> I weren't happy with the way you were throwing punches, mate. <laughs> you, listen, you know I'm a student of the boxing game. If I could have been a boxer, I would have loved to have been a boxer. Yeah, you know you're boxing. Would I would have loved to. I think, I think we have to ask, you go into that dressing room after what's just happened. The manager comes in. We talked about emotions. <laughs> Where is your emotion right then when Graham Souness walked through that door? So we're in the change room. 
we're still angry and we still want to fight. So we're trying to get each other. So my emotion is just sheer anger. Then Boomsong comes in first and he's like, you want to fight? Fight now. So I'm thinking, buzzing. I want my revenge. <laughs> I want to fight now. And then Big Al and Soon has come in, mate. And honestly, my anger soon went to scared. Really? Scared emotion. Yeah. Yeah. Soon has said, yeah. I will fight both of you <laughs> right now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, was, honestly, you don't want to mess with Sooners. Yeah, no no, he's got that eye of the tiger in it, kids. But got... to be fair, that's the most angriest I've seen Big Al as well. That was Al's last season. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So that was he'd, he'd come out and said he was retiring that season, and we were still in the UEFA Cup quarterfinals and the FA Cup semi-finals. And he knew by that fight that me and Lee Bowyer were suspended against Man United in the FA Cup semi-final. Listen, we could have had a chance of getting a going to the final and winning a cup and in his last season and we're fighting on the pitch getting suspended like idiots it was self-defense by the way he did attack me. <laughs> i remember being i remember being invited to the christmas party not the christmas party the christmas lunch we had at jasmine dean house because i was training there and i remember when you were off to london i think both you and bo were off to london straight after yeah. that it wasn't too too long after that and i remember say, i remember saying to graham Sooness when he invited me i'd made a conscious effort in eight years seven years not to go to be around sort of outside and whether we're playing football or to be invited to any of the events um because i wanted to keep it separate and i said no no yeah. I'm, I'm all right and he looked at me and he went you are <laughs> you are coming and i tell you what <laughs> I did. I dropped my shopping, I tell you, big time. And uh, Dean Saunders looked at me and he went, I have seen that face a thousand times. It's fine. <laughs> Just say yes to the man. And I was like, yeah, I was like, that was like a naughty school kid. Yes, I'll come. Yes, I'll come. I'll have me turkey dinner. But as, as Leon said there before, Kieran, I just want to thank you for coming on because I've got to understand and know the real Kieran Dyer and I want everybody outside world to, to understand what the real Kieran Dyer is about. A kind, generous human being who has had faults, as like we all have, yep. but had a fantastic career, few troubles, but I hope you're immensely proud of what you've done and achieved in your career so far and wish you well with everything you, you, you do in your further career, especially if you go into management. 33 caps for England, by the way. Never played for England uh, when I was 20, after 20 years of 27 when I broke my leg. So in my whole prime, I never got the chance to play because I was always injured. So, mm. But yeah, I really enjoyed it today. I'm glad that you'll be given this platform to speak about something that is really taboo, really taboo in the, in the sports world. I've always said to Leon, he's, he's the original godfather. There's so many people now on this, on the, the mental health aspect of sport and Leon was one of the pioneers one of the first people to really embrace it and try and get the story out there and uh, Harmy you're doing a fantastic job um, as well and keep up the good work get some good guests in and let them keep telling the other stories because it's good to talk and it's good to show vulnerability and to get help um, because it is going to help you in the long run cheers Kieran thank you very much The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds? We set them. Form guides? We've got them. Expert opinions? We share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Ladbrokes. Odds updates on Talk Sport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18 plus, begambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.